invite you to please turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28. As we continue in our series through the epistle to the Hebrews. And there we read, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What we see in our text this morning and what we see in all of Scripture, loved ones, is that our salvation is completely of God. Our salvation is completely God-centered. It is initiated by God. It was initiated in eternity past. And God created us in his infinite wisdom, created all that there is, things seen and unseen. And then through the Son accomplished our salvation in the fullness of time. And then God promised and has promised in his word that he will complete the good work that he has begun. He will continue to sanctify us by his Holy Spirit and that he will raise us up in the last day. It is all of God. It is God-centered. As the reading that we had in our assurance of forgiveness this morning states from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then the Apostle Paul says, all this is from God, not from you, Not from me, it wasn't of our own initiative, but it was all of God. And this is what we see throughout the book of Hebrews, and especially in our passage this morning. We consider our first point, that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. We read from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now in trying to explain why the Levitical priesthood was no longer in effect, The inspired author of Hebrews points to the fact here that the Levitical priesthood 
was not established with an oath. It was established by God in the older covenants to point to Christ, but even the way that God designed the Levitical priesthood showed that it wasn't meant to be permanent. The very fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated daily revealed that something better needed to come, a better sacrifice, a superior sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that did not need to be repeated. And so Christ's priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, is that eternal one that the Levitical order pointed to. It is one that will not pass away. It will not be superseded by something better. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because God, says the author of Hebrews, established the priesthood of Christ with an oath. The author of Hebrews already explained the oath-guaranteed nature of Christ's priesthood in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. And if you flip just perhaps one page back in your Bible, we see in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The oath that the writer of Hebrews is referring to is an oath that God swore by himself swore upon his own name, upon his own life. He swore it by himself because he is the highest authority on whom to swear. There is no one greater. And the oath was that he would appoint a priest in the order of Melchizedek, one who would not be inferior like the Levites, but one who would be superior in every way. This oath was a sure word from God, and it's found in Psalm 110, which we've referenced often in the sermon series as the writer of Hebrews keeps pointing us back to it. Psalm 110, the author of Hebrews quotes it again, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And so now the author of Hebrews brings these two eternal ideas together in our text. The eternality, the unchangeable nature of God's oath, and the eternality of of Christ's priesthood, that he is a priest forever. And he shows that Christ is, by these things, the guarantor of a better covenant. He's pointing to why Christ is superior. And he's showing us that there will never be a time in the future where Christ's priesthood will pass away, where Christ's priesthood will be superseded by a new and better covenant priesthood, that Christ will somehow be superseded by someone greater than him, as happened in the Levitical order. No, the writer of Hebrews says that the eternal priesthood of Jesus rests on God's promise and oath, a promise that is itself eternal because it is based on God's very life. But we have to ask the question as we think about this oath, this promise, when was it made? This promise that Jesus' priesthood would be eternal. 
And we need to answer this question about when it was made in order to understand what it means that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. So the question is, when was this oath made? Well, we see that it was recorded in Scripture by King David in Psalm 110, but the word itself was spoken even before King David was born. David recorded it as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was a word that was spoken before David himself was even born. It was revealed to him, but it preceded him. Just like the first chapters of of the creation account of Genesis superseded Moses, and yet Moses later recorded them as they were revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. In the same way, this oath was revealed to David for it to be recorded in Scripture. It was an oath then. It was made before David. It was, in fact, made in eternity, before time. It was made to the Son when God the Father gave him his priestly assignment in the covenant of redemption. When we talk about the covenant of redemption, it's a covenant that was made before time, before even creation, a covenant in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed together to achieve a common purpose. And that common purpose was the glory of God and the salvation of the elect. Again, salvation is not of us. It is all of God. And in this eternal covenant, before time, before creation, God the Father outlined the conditions of the covenant. The conditions were that God the Son would take on a true human nature, that he would, in that human nature, fulfill all the demands of the law by his active obedience. He would follow the law perfectly. He would do what Adam failed to do. And that God the Son would also suffer the wrath and the judgment of God by his passive obedience, that he would do this for his elect. He would take their sin upon himself and bear the curse of that sin upon himself. And in response, then, God the Father promised that he would support the Son and give him power through God the Holy Spirit, that we know the Holy Spirit empowered the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry. And if God the Son then accomplished his work, if he fulfilled all the obligations of this covenant, he would then achieve salvation for the elect. And God the Father, says the Puritan John Owen, confirmed these promises with an oath, with his sure word. God the Son then voluntarily accepted the conditions and he assumed the work as guarantor of the covenant, that he would bear the legal obligations of the covenant for his people. This is what a guarantor is. It's Jesus saying, I'm good for it. I'll do it. He then is the one who offered himself in order to secure the promises for us. And so then this oath from Psalm 110, again, an oath that David records, but that was spoken before David was even born. This oath is an oath in which the father speaks to the son and he appoints him as a priest forever. And it's an oath that reveals the eternal covenant nature of Christ's appointment as high priest. See, that's why 
the author of Hebrews points to the Lord Jesus as the guarantor of a better covenant. The older covenant under Moses, again, was not made to be around forever. It was, it was temporary. It was composed of types and shadows that only pointed to Christ. But Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, an eternal covenant. And so when we think about the covenant of redemption then and about the conditions that Christ agreed to fulfill, we see, loved ones, don't we, in Scripture, that he did fulfill them. He fulfilled them fully and perfectly. And he is the one who truly took on our human nature, and it was a true human nature. And he was made like us in every way, yet without sin. In this time of year, we uh, sing the very well-known hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's hymn 241 in our hymnal. There's a line in that hymn that says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That hymn speaking about the fact that Jesus truly did take on our human nature. He was veiled in flesh. And then we know even at his incarnation, when he became like you and like me, yet without sin, he wasn't born into wealth, he wasn't born into comfort, he wasn't born into ease, as was the first Adam, but he was born into poverty and obscurity and persecution. He experienced what the majority of the world experiences. And we also know of the Lord Jesus that after his incarnation, he then perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the law by his active obedience. That throughout his life, he is the only one, he is the only one, loved ones, that can be said of him that he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that he loved his neighbor as himself. And he also suffered the wrath and judgment of God by his passive obedience. He took the sin of his people upon himself. He systematically fulfilled those covenant requirements for you and for me in his incarnation, in his active obedience, in his passive obedience. And the prophet Isaiah captures this truth so clearly in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where there we read that he, speaking of the suffering servant, was wounded for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was placed the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, with his wounds, we are healed. And the apostle Peter echoes Isaiah when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we read, you have been healed. And the Apostle Paul explains it this way in the passage we heard quoted for, from the uh, assurance of pardon this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that for our sake... God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Loved ones, what we see in all of this is that Christ is the covenant keeper. He is the one who fulfilled all of the obligations of the covenant of redemption, 
and thereby has secured our salvation. What is a covenant of grace for you and for me was a covenant of works for the Lord Jesus Christ, a covenant of works that he perfectly fulfilled. And so the writer here is, is drawing this connection. I want us to see it between Jesus' eternal priesthood and our eternal security. The writer of Hebrews is saying that and is showing us that because the Lord Jesus lives forever, you and I will live forever. He is the one who has indestructible life, and he is the one who has thereby given us indestructible life. He is the one of whom it is said in the book of Revelation, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. By his obedience, loved ones, we have been given eternal life. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 60, it's a reformed uh, catechism that was written in the 1500s, and it's actually a catechism that we'll be studying throughout next year in adult Sunday school. The Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, how are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? The answer is that we are righteous only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and I have never kept any of them, and am still prone always to all evil, See how the catechism describes us here? Really taking the rug out from under us, our self-assurance. Though these things are true, the catechism continues and says, yet God, yet God, again, it's all of God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And then it continues and says, as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. See, loved ones, what the catechism is pointing us to and the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is that our righteousness, our righteousness will never change because it is grounded in the eternal indestructible righteousness of our ever-living Savior. He guarantees that our covenant relationship with God will always be one of blessing. It will never be one of cursing because he is the one who has bore the curses for us eternally. We are secured loved ones. And that's what the inspired author now points us to in these next verses as we read that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. You see in verses 23 to 25 of Hebrews chapter 7, that the former priests, we read, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What we see here in verse 25, that the inspired author points again to the eternal nature of Christ's priesthood, that the Lord Jesus holds this priesthood permanently 
because he continues forever. This is important because, as I mentioned last week, the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, was written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And because of this, uh, the reason most scholars believe this and agree to this is because the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD was such a monumental event for Judaism, for Christianity, for the world, that it's strange that it wouldn't be mentioned in the book of Hebrews if it was written after the destruction of the temple. The very fact that it isn't mentioned in Hebrews is very strong evidence that the destruction hadn't yet been destroyed. And so, you know, we can liken this to a modern-day historian who was writing perhaps about the war on terrorism, never mentioning September 11th, 2001, the attack on the World Trade Center. Right? We know that that event was, was pivotal in the war on terrorism. It changed the way that we see the world. And so in the same way, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD was monumental to Judaism and to Christianity because it was a clear sign to all that the older covenant had passed away, especially to Christians who knew Scripture and who understood how Christ had fulfilled the promises of God. It was a clear sign. God was demonstrating through Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, through Pentecost, and now through the destruction of the temple that the old had passed away, the new has come. And so therefore, as we consider the book of Hebrews, because the temple was still standing as it was written, there was a temptation for these Christians who had at one point been Jews to return to the practices of their old faith, to return to Judaism. And because after all, the, Levitic, the Levitical priesthood was still there. They were still ministering in the temple courts. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still interceding for the people before God. You know, they, they, they looked busy. They looked like they were doing stuff for God, even though we know that their offerings at that time were no longer being received because the superior offering had already been made through the cross of Jesus Christ. But these priests looked busy. And so the inspired writer of Hebrews, understanding the temptations that these Christians are facing, he says that Jesus' priesthood also continues. It's not as though he has ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, and has ceased caring for us, for you and for me. No, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And so we read, or consequently, or therefore we read in verse 25, he is able, as a result of his ongoing eternal priestly ministry for his people, he is able to save to the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now that word, that phrase, to the uttermost, in verse 25, it can be translated as fully 
and completely. The writer of Hebrews is pointing to the fact that because of Christ's ministry as priest, fulfilling those covenant obligations, he has saved us, his people, for all time, and he has saved us in all completeness. There is nothing left to be done but for him to return and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus' priestly ministry to us, loved ones, is for all time, and it is complete. The writer of Hebrews points out the fact that the older covenant priests were numerous because they died and then their ministry would end, as he says in verse 23. But Jesus' ministry is not like that. His ministry is for all time. And it's complete. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that even now, the Lord Jesus is interceding for us. He, loved ones, continues to bring our requests before the Father. You know, as we consider what Jesus' intercession looks like at this very moment for us before the Father, we, we have to be careful how we understand what this intercession looks like. Now, some have made a, a wrong distinction between God the Father and God the Son, uh, thinking that you know, God the Father is, is this wrathful deity who can't wait to dispense justice. He's just so mean. And then on the other side is God the Son, who is all-loving and who is kind and who is patient. And so he constantly has to plead with his mean father in order to spare us from bad things. You'd be surprised at how many people have believed that throughout the past 2,000 years. But loved ones, what we see in Scripture is that our salvation is all of God. God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit. What we see in the covenant of redemption is the work of our triune God to bring us to salvation. The Apostle Paul points to this unity in the Godhead to accomplish our salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 34. And you'll notice as I read these verses that Paul first talks about God the Father sending the Son on that covenant mission. And so we know that God the Father loved the world so much that he sent the Son, and then the Son will see willingly fulfilled all the righteous requirements of that covenant. I read from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, the loving Father sending the Son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so, loved ones, even now God the Son is interceding for us, as is God, the Holy Spirit. We read about the Holy Spirit's ministry to us in the same chapter of Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Loved ones, in the New Testament, we get an insight into Jesus' prayers for us, what the intercession of God the Son is like right now before the Father. We get, uh, we get an insight, for example, from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. There, the, the Lord Jesus prays in this way in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then verse 15, listen to the prayers of God the Son for you and for me. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And an even more concrete example is the one we find in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, where Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter, and he's saying to Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. This is a very violent image. But, we read in verse 32, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Loved ones, what we see in these passages, in Hebrews and in John and in Luke, you and I have an eternal priest whose prayers are eternally effective. And grasping this truth will bolster our prayer life. It will encourage us and exhort us in prayer. Now, sometimes prayer can feel like you're talking to yourself. Sometimes, especially when you're going through uh, spiritual struggles, it can feel like they're hitting the ceiling of the room and falling back down. Uh, loved ones, remember that even as you pray, the Father is hearing, the Son is interceding, the Spirit is interceding, making those prayers acceptable to God. And grasping this truth will also help you and I when struggling with assurance. That assurance is not found in our performance, but it's found in Christ's performance in that covenant of redemption, a performance that was perfect and complete. And all of this, loved ones, makes Jesus, therefore, our superior high priest, a high priest that is far better than any of the priests of the older covenant, as we read from verses 26 through 28 of Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In these verses, and throughout the passage this morning, the inspired author, we see contrasts the high priests of Jesus ministry with the high priests of the older 
covenant. We see there in verses 23 through 24. The first contrast is that they were many in number. Jesus is one. Those high priests, he says, were temporary, but Jesus, as our high priest, is permanent and eternal. He's pointing to the fact that, you know, they died. Those high priests, their genealogy is recorded. They weren't around forever. But in contrast to that, Jesus is the one who has indestructible life as is evidenced by the glory of his resurrection. A second contrast we see is in verses 26 through 27. He points out the fact, the writer does, that the high priests under the older covenant were sinners. They were sinners who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. In contrast to this, though, Jesus, he describes him as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And we see, especially in the, older, in the Old Testament, don't we, loved ones, that the high priests under the Older Covenant were very sinful, just like you, just like me. They were not perfect men. We read the example of Aaron this morning in Exodus chapter 32. And I like the fact that I heard some chuckles from you as we read you know, Aaron's account that we just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. I was like, it wasn't premeditated at all, Lord. I would never do any kind of premeditated sin. You know me, oh God, right? Uh, no, Aaron, Aaron was, was a sin, sinner. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. We see this also in Eli's worthless sons. And they're actually described as worthless sons in the Old Testament. And as a result of, of this sinful nature of the high priests, God gave this promise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. There we read, I will raise up for myself a faithful high priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. The promise given in 1 Samuel that that high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, that high priest that was promised before creation, that high priest is coming. And he is the one who will do all my will for my people. He will fulfill all of those covenant requirements. And the third contrast we see in our text is that the high priest of Israel under the older covenant had to offer animal sacrifices daily. In contrast to this, Jesus sacrificed himself. Once for all. This points to the worth of his sacrifice. A worth that we will talk at length about in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. But I want to read from Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14 because these verses encapsulate uh, what this contrast is pointing to. We read in Hebrews chapter 9 beginning at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And so, loved ones, on this basis, on the basis of the merits of our Savior Jesus Christ and on the basis of his accomplished work, we have certain hope. And it's hope not just for today and not just for tomorrow, but for eternity. Because there is a priest, loved ones, at this very moment who is seated at the right hand of God. He is an eternal priest, a forever priest. And your name and my name are written on his hands. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. We thank you for the revelation that he brings of our salvation. We thank you for the superiority of his work of redemption, that it is finished. And we thank you that he is even now seated at your right hand, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.